please stand for the reading of the gospel? From Matthew 1, 18 to 25. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she, had get, until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. You can be seated. Good morning, everyone. At each of the births of my four children, there were four main characters present. There was my wife, who had the task of birthing the child, a small task. There was my mother-in-law, who had the task of offering support and coaching and encouragement to my wife through the labor, which was so valuable. At each of the births, there was a midwife uh, who was tasked with delivering the child. So I had three women doing amazing work in the delivery room. And then there was me. I knew I needed to be there. I don't, it's not cool these days to sit out in the lobby with a cigar, apparently. Like, I wanted to be there. I think Krishana would say that I, I, I did offer something. But it was, there's moments where as a father, you ask yourself, what exactly am I doing here? What am I offering here? All over the world this week, the, the drama of Jesus' birth will be reenacted. And we know that up on the stage, Joseph has got to be there. But Joseph has some role to play. But it's also not always clear what exactly Joseph's role is. You know, I at least in that, in that delivery room knew that I had contributed half of the DNA of that child. Joseph doesn't even get that. In most years, with the way the church calendar takes us, we get to see the birth of Jesus uh, through Mary's eyes. But this year, we get to see it through Joseph's eyes. And what I want you to see today is that Joseph is not a bit player in this drama. Joseph has a critical role to play. I want to start by taking you back to the first line of Matthew's gospel. It begins with this line. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Uh, in my NIV translation, there's a little footnote right there that you can look down and you can see that another way of translating this is, this is the account of the origin of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. I like that. This is the account of the origin of the Messiah. It, it kind of has this mythic ring to it. 
I think when we hear origin stories of people who uh, are legendary or consequential, our ears tend to perk up. Think of Luke Skywalker, legendary Jedi master. When we meet Luke in A New Hope, okay, he's living with his aunt and uncle on this remote setting in the planet of Tatooine in the desert. And I think we know that this kid has some role to play in this drama. Okay? But there's all these unanswered questions, like why is this kid out in the middle of the desert? Is he hiding? Why is he living with his uncle? Why is he living with his aunt? Where's his father? Where's his mother? Is there some backstory there with his dad? In the Gospel of Mark, which nearly all scholars believe is the first gospel account written, Jesus seems to kind of emerge out of nowhere. There's no genealogy, there's no birth story, there's no childhood. There's just this mysterious figure that kind of emerges out of the mist of the Nazarene hills and comes down to the Jordan River and is baptized and is declared the Son of God. But people would have scratched their heads and thought, man, the Messiah coming out of Nazareth? That's not the way it's supposed to work. What's this guy's story? What's the, what's the origin of this guy? And Matthew says, have I got a story for you? And he starts off his story of Jesus with a genealogy. Now, genealogies don't sound interesting to us. We, most of us, struggle. I mean, think about it. Can you, you can name your grandparents, I hope. You might be able to name your great-grandparents. Maybe not. And then after that, it's going to get pretty tough for most of us. But in Jesus' world, and still many places in the world today, family histories, family trees are a vital part of who you are. They're your credentials. They're your resume that you break out. And Matthew opens his gospel kind of like a town crier who's blaring his trumpet and calling out, pay attention to this guy. This guy comes from the line of David. This guy is heir to royalty. This guy is a, he's a Kennedy. He's a Roosevelt. He's a Rockefeller. This guy traces his ancestry to King David, which makes sense. Because people had heard a story, a prophecy, that one day someone would come and bring balance to the force. No, sorry, that's, that's a different prophecy. That one day someone from the line of King David would come and rescue Israel from her enemies, restore the kingdom that had been lost, and take his rightful place on David's throne. But there's this quirk in Jesus' family tree. See, uh, it go, Matthew takes us all the way back to Abraham, and he has this list that goes on and on. It goes like this. And so-and-so was the father of so-and-so, was the father of so-and-so, was the father of so-and-so, was the father of David, was the father of so-and-so, and so-and-so. And it just keeps going until it gets to Joseph. And it says this. Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus who was called the Messiah. So Joseph, he doesn't, he's not called Jesus' father, as we'd expect. We had this long list. So-and-so is the father of so-and-so. We get to Joseph. He's the husband of Mary. What's the story behind that? And to tell that story, Matthew takes us to Nazareth, which I, I had a chance to visit Nazareth last summer. It's this nowadays, it's a sprawling, bustling city that sits up high on a hill. Back in Jesus' day, it's a small town. Think, like 400 people, think Negley, Okay. The song, as I was working on this sermon this week, the song that, that popped up in my head uh, was the song Small Town by John Mellencamp. It's an old reference. Hopefully some of us are here. It's not a new reference. All right, John Mellencamp, like early 80s. John Cougar Mellencamp? Yeah, okay, good. Um, this is Joseph's anthem. Okay, Joseph, 
he may have royal blood, but Joseph is small town. Born in a small town, lives in a small town, educated in a small town, taught to fear Yahweh in a small town. <laughs> Thank you, Elizabeth. <laughs> Parents live in the same small town, probably going to die in the small town. I'm so thankful, Elizabeth, here. <laughs> that's Joseph's song, and that's his plan. He's going to marry a hometown girl, Mary. He's going to go to join the Carpenters Local 40, 40, 435. He's got Sephiroth is just down the road. He's got construction to do. He's going to have a few kids. He's going to buy a house. He's going to vacation down the Gulf of Mexico. He is a man with a plan. So he goes one day, takes Mary, goes down to the rabbi in front of a few witnesses, and they are betrothed. The thing for us to know here is they are as good as married at this point. They are husband and wife. They just have to wait one year before Mary can leave her parents' house and move in with Joseph, right? Then the marriage is sealed. They can start building their life together. they got a plan. And one day, Mary, maybe she bumps into him in Nazareth, going to the market. And she says, we need to talk. I'm pregnant. Now, even though this is 2,000 years ago, let's remind ourselves that Joseph is pretty familiar with the mechanics of how this works, right? He's pretty sure he's not the father. He knows he's not the father of this child, and he knows this is not part of the plan. So imagine with me what Joseph is feeling right now. Crushed, confused, embarrassed, betrayed, thank you, angry. And Joseph, the man with a plan, in an instant had all those plans totally upended. So what's Joseph going to do? What we read in the text is that Joseph is faithful to the law. He's a righteous man. He's the kind of guy who does the right thing, even in hard circumstances. What is the right thing to do here? The right thing to do here, the faithful thing to do, is to divorce Mary. Notice that. That's the righteous thing to do. Mary's pregnant. She's not living with Joseph. Right? In the eyes of the law, the Jewish law, she has committed adultery. The faithful, the righteous thing to do is to divorce her. Joseph doesn't have a choice. That's what you do. He, he does have one choice, though. He can do this one of two ways. He can publicly um, do it. He can bring Mary to trial for adultery. He can subject her to humiliation. Or he can do it privately. He can annul this contract, which would save Mary the humiliation and public accusation and also public trial. So notice, I mean, we're, gonna, we're looking at Joseph today. Notice Joseph is not vindictive. Okay? I don't know how Joseph is feeling. I'm sure he's not feeling good. He's not vindictive. He's trying to balance this compassion he has for Mary and also his desire to be righteous, to faithful to the law. But I want you to notice something else here about Joseph. It's, 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 it's uh, easy to miss. We read that he considered this. Right? Joseph is thinking. He's contemplating. He's considering it. And he goes to bed. I don't know what kind of state Joseph was in when his head hit the pillow that night, but I'm imagining it was one of those restless, tortured nights of sleep that, that most of us probably have experienced one time. During the day, you just found out some news that completely upended your world, and you got to go to bed that night. And so you toss and you turn, and finally, when sleep comes, it's kind of this feverish sleep I'm imagining for Joseph. And at that point, then Joseph starts to dream. And in the dream, the angel comes to him and says, don't be afraid. 
If you know the stories around the birth narrative, uh, you should know by now, when you hear the words, don't be afraid, you should absolutely be afraid. Because your life is about to get messed with. Okay? You might go mute. You might bear the Son of God. But your life is about to change. If the angel says to you, don't, listen, uh, don't be afraid, do not listen to that angel. He's going to get you to relax for a second, and then bam, he's going to deliver the news. When you hear the words, don't be afraid, be afraid. Here's the plan, Joseph. You are not going to divorce Mary. Rather, you're going to take her home, where she's going to give birth to a son. You're going to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from his sins. There's a whole other sermon here about these names that Jesus gives. I'll touch on one of them later, but we've got these two names, Emmanuel and then Jesus, which you which get the meaning of that. He will save his people from his sins. Whole another sermon. What I want you to notice this morning is that Joseph is going to give the child the name. Okay, why does this matter? Why does it matter that Joseph is going to give the name to the child? Because if Joseph gives the name to Jesus, that, can, that gives legal recognition to Jesus as his own son. Okay, this child that's not his child, if he gives the name, the child's his. Okay? See, see, this is interesting. Righteous Joseph, faithful Joseph, is being asked to reconsider what righteousness means in this situation. See, there's one group of people that, that have a definition of what righteousness means, about what it means to be faithful to the law, and then Joseph is asked by the angel to do something different. Okay? Righteousness now is going to be taking this woman as his wife. He's being asked to reimagine righteousness, which sounds a lot like a, a major theme of a sermon his son will preach on a mountain one day when he asks people to reimagine what righteousness looks like. And Joseph wakes up. I'm imagining if Joseph went to sleep in this kind of feverish state, I'm imagining him now in bed, uh, in that kind of liminal space between consciousness and sleep. I'm sure you've experienced that space before. You're not quite awake, but you're still sleeping a little bit. Joseph's plans now have been disrupted twice. Okay? His first plan, he had this life with Mary all planned out. That was disrupted by the Holy Spirit. Next plan, he's going to divorce Mary quietly. That's been disrupted by the angel of the Lord. You see this, this pattern that God is messing with Joseph's plans. So what do you do? I remember uh, we did, last year this time, we did a, a series on Mary. And I remember just in that series thinking, man, this young teenage girl has got grit. She's got some courage. Like this angel comes to her in that account and says, you're going to give birth to a son. He's going to be a king. His reign will never end. You're going to, we talked about that. Said, what a dicey situation that would have put Mary in. She's going to get possibly dragged in front of a court. She's going to be possibly humiliated. She might be left to raise a son alone. And I, I just love Mary's response. I'm the Lord's servant. May your word be fulfilled. She thinks about it, and there's this like steely courage that comes out. I want that. Sign me up for that. And now it's Joseph's turn. What's, what's Joseph might be afraid of? Well, this is probably going to be humiliating for Joseph. Right? This is a small town. This is 400 people. A lot of you probably lived in towns of 400 people or less. It doesn't take long for people in small towns to put two and two together, does it? They're not going to miss what's happened here. This has the potential to be humiliating for Joseph. So what does Joseph do? I'm going to assume that Joseph has a choice. 
I think oftentimes we read these stories and we're like, well, that's, they didn't have a choice. No, I'm going to assume the angel comes to Joseph and Joseph can go this way or Joseph can go that way. This way, Joseph ignores the angel, chalks it up to a weird dream, divorces Mary, puts this whole thing behind him, and gets a new plan for his life. That's option number one. What's option number two? He steps out in faith. He doesn't know where this is going. He takes a massive risk. And he marries this girl, as crazy as it seems, no matter what the cost is to him. That's the choice Joseph makes. And when Joseph makes that choice, he's no longer a bit player in this story. This is a critical role in this story. Don't miss what Joseph's doing here. This is no small thing. Joseph's going to give the boy the name Jesus. What does that mean? That means that boy now is entered into the line of David. Without Joseph, that boy is not in the line of David. Now he's grafted onto Joseph's family tree. He's on the royal line of David. He's a son of David now. Again, in that sermon series on Mary, I just walked away so impressed with Mary and what Mary teaches us about discipleship. And I, this year, we only have one week with Joseph, but I'm just really impressed with Joseph. Let me tell you a few things that I am taking away from Joseph. Joseph is, teaches us what it means to be, seek to be a faithful and righteous person and to grow in our understanding of what righteousness means. It's not easy. We don't, we don't like to change our minds, especially the older we get. Joseph gives us a portrait of courage. He knows saying yes is going to move him off the safe path and onto a risky path. Yet he says yes. Joseph's responsible. Right? Joseph puts the interest of his child and his wife above his own interest. Right? Now this vulnerable child is going to be supported, is going to be protected, is going to be provided by a father. And now his wife, who's received this incredible calling from the Lord, there was this one female commentator that points out that Mary doesn't check with Joseph if she can say yes to this uh, calling from the Lord, which I thought was a good point. Mary's already said, yes, I'm doing this, I'm in. Joseph, you in with her. Joseph says, yes, I'm in. I'm going to support the calling that, that, that my wife has received from the Lord. No small task. And while he doesn't speak, he acts. Right? This is a, this is a, a portrait of someone who's, who we know what he's like by what he acts. There's a lot to learn from Joseph, but I want to zero in on one thing here today, and that's Joseph's ability to listen to God. Let me tell you a story here. A few weeks ago, I was sitting around my dinner uh, table with some friends from Michigan, and uh, they were passing through, and Abel was sitting there at the table with us. And we got to talking about dreams. And, um, and Abel was sharing, he shared, talked a little bit about this with me before, but in Benin, there's much more kind of recognition that there's Christians who have the ability, the spiritual gift to interpret dreams. Okay, so we're talking about that, and we're talking about um, the, the, the good parts of being in the United States and the challenging parts of being in the United States, and and uh, particularly as it relates to faith, and we're talking about that. And, and Abel makes the observation, he says something like, Americans are always busy working, right? When you're always busy working, it doesn't leave a lot of time for any much other things. And he was talking about how it wouldn't be uncommon in his church back in his village to take two days to just pray at the church. It might be a tough sell to Americans. Let's take two days, let's gather here, let's not leave. You can produce a lot of wealth there's a lot of opportunity in this country. You can produce a lot of wealth 
And that wealth and that busyness comes at a cost. Because among other things, we don't leave much margin for God, much space for listening to God. So we're talking about dreams, and we're talking about the challenges of space and time in our culture for God. And, and there's a young woman sitting at the table, the daughter, and she, she starts to tell a story. She says, you know, I, I was working uh, at a, as a counselor in, in Pennsylvania at this church camp, and I, I got a, a, a tick bite there, and it formed this bullseye around it which is not a good sign. And so I, I didn't know what to do. I was recommended that I go to urgent care, but then I found out that was closed, and I thought, you know, I'm just going to trust, basically, that this is going to be healed. But she started getting worse. And meanwhile, her dad, who was my friend, who was back up in Michigan, he doesn't know about any of this, but um, he, he one night has this vivid dream where he's walking into the bedroom of his grandma's trailer, and he switches on the light, and, and they surprised that there's his daughter, the one that's a camp counselor in PA, and she's flailing around. She's tossing and turning in distress. She's in physical discomfort, but he said he could see in the dream that she was troubled in her mind, that she had, was regretting something. You know, he said, I asked him about it this week, he said, that wasn't a common experience for me. And usually, probably like most of it, he dreams, and then he quickly forgets what the dream was. But this felt different. And so he reached out to his daughter. He soon found out his daughter's condition, that she was, in fact, in physical distress, I encouraged her to seek medical help, to, to take an antibiotic, which she did, and recovered. Uh, and he, he looked back and he thought that that dream was possibly given to him by God. Because that's interesting to me. Like, we could have a whole discussion about dreams and God speaking to us in dreams. But what he said next to me was really, next to me was also interesting to me. Because in telling the story and reflecting on Abel's comment about how busy with work we are, he recalled that you know, the days prior to that dream, he'd been serving at a church camp as a cabin dad and teaching assistant. It had been this very, you could tell it had been a very spiritually rich week. He'd actually, uh, two boys had been baptized that week that he had walked along with. And as he was talking about it, he begins to make this connection. Did my time at camp, did my openness and space with God, did that focus, did that prepare me to hear from God in the dream? And the question I have for us today is, are we prepared for God to speak to us? Maybe in dreams. Like I said, that's an interesting thing to think about. But not just in dreams. I mean, are we prepared to God to speak to us, period? Right? When disruptive and confusing things happen in our life like they did to Joseph, do we take time to consider, to contemplate what is happening? Do we have space? Do we have margin in our lives to hear from God? Or is every last second of ours filled with work or activity? Or if it's not filled with work or activity, is it filled with noise of televisions and distractions of our screens? Which then begs the question in my mind, do we want to hear from God? Matthew, why would we not want to hear from God? I would love to hear from God like Joseph. Well, because like Joseph, we got, we got plenty we got lots of plans. we got plans for what our life is going to look like and where we're going to live. we got strategic plans for our jobs and our businesses. we got financial plans for how we're going to use our money. we got extracurricular plans for our kids. we got vacation plans. we got retirement plans. we got lots and lots of plans. That's okay. Plans are good. You know, one of the amazing things that we're given that sets us apart from all of the creatures that God has given us the ability to imagine something in the future that does not yet exist, 
That's an amazing thing to do, to plan. But the problem becomes is when our plans are not open for disruption. When we don't want or allow God to disrupt our plans, to mess with our plans, to replace those plans with dreams. See, it's interesting. Joseph goes to bed with a plan, and he wakes up with a dream. He goes to bed with a plan to divorce his wife quietly, and in the middle of the night, that plan gets replaced with a dream to become the father of a child who's not his father, his child. To become the father of a child that's not his child. To support this unwed, pregnant teenage girl from a small town. Joseph, angel says to Joseph, I know you got a plan, but I'm going to replace this with a dream. And Joseph is no bit player in this great drama. Joseph's got a role to play, and that role is to listen to God. Right? See, this isn't going to be the first time that, that God speaks to Joseph in a dream. This learning to listen to God is going to be critical for the future of this child because soon Joseph's going to get another dream that it's time to escape to Egypt, that someone wants to kill that son, and so he's obedient, he does it. And then he's going to get another dream where it's time to go back to Nazareth. Joseph is learning to listen to the Lord. He's learning to hear a word from the Lord and then be obedient to that word. Joseph is learning how to get his plans messed with and replaced with dreams. Are we open to God replacing our plans with dreams? A number of years ago, after I did a whole sermon series on the Sabbath, I began to be much more intentional about practicing Sabbath, about setting aside one day a week imperfectly where I had no plans. That's the beauty about Sabbath. The point of Sabbath is to have no plans and to shut off all the noise around you. No phone no scrolling, no plans. Lots of interesting things happened when I did that, but here's what really surprised me. As I started to spend time in silence, I started to dream again. Somewhere along the lines, I think as a child, as you get older and you get more and more responsibility, you forget what it's like to dream. And Sabbath had given me this ability, this time to dream again. And the older I get, I'm convinced of a couple different things. I'm convinced that God gives us the freedom to open ourselves up to hear him or not. See, if we communicate to God that we really have no interest in God disrupting our plans, God has granted us autonomy. He doesn't force our hands. He's given us freedom. If we communicate to God that we are not open to our plans being disrupted, we should not be surprised when God doesn't speak to us. But I'm also convinced, I'm learning as a disciple of Jesus myself, that so much of our faith is about listening like Joseph. You know how many lines, how many words Joseph gets in the Bible? Zero. Maybe some women can celebrate that. <laughs> The older man gets zero lines, doesn't get to explain to the young woman how things work. So Joseph gets zero words. Listening is hard. Listening deeply to other people is really hard. Listening to someone who disagrees with you and contemplating what they're saying, opening yourself up to changing your mind, that's hard. That takes practice. Listening to God 
is hard. Take, it's a discipline. It's a spiritual discipline. It takes practice. And listening to God is risky. Okay, when you're really open to listening to God, you're putting yourself in a vulnerable place because your plans might get messed with. When you're contemplating, when you're meditating, when you're putting yourself in front of God and saying, I want to hear from you, you need to get ready because your plans might get messed with. You may, for example, be asked to rethink what it means to be faithful. You may be asked to rethink what it means to be righteous. And you may have your plans replaced by dreams. And that's a good thing. Because that's the backstory to the greatest story of all time. The origin story of Jesus the Messiah is a story about a plan that got replaced with a dream. The world was never the same. God is a disruptor. God is a disruptor of plans. God is a disruptor of plans then and now. How can you trust that God then? How can you put yourself in a vulnerable and risky place where you will listen to God? Well, there's one key line in our text today. Because we find out, Matthew comes along and he says, not only is that child going to be called Jesus, he's going to be called Emmanuel. And you know what Emmanuel Emmanuel means God with us. And if God is with us, God is for us. No God who is not for us would ever enter into this mess of our creation to save his people. But that is exactly what God does in the person of Jesus. God is with us, meaning God is for us, meaning we can trust God to disrupt our plans and replace them with 